The message this morning is from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Well, I don't know about you, but the idea of a shepherd makes me think of a robed man with a staff, centuries ago, leading a romantic, quiet life, caring for puffy, cute sheep. But in reality, the job of a shepherd is immensely difficult, and it still is immensely difficult. So in the Tushiti Mountains, in the nation of Georgia, in the Middle East, even today, shepherds guide their flocks up and down steep slopes, searching for greener pastures as the rainy seasons come. It's an incredibly dangerous journey, and shepherds can lose their lives on the way. In another article in the paper, The Telegraph from the UK, here's what one career shepherd has to say. You need to be tough as old boots. The romance wears off after a few weeks, believe me, and you will be left standing cold and lonely on a mountain. It is all about endurance, digging in, holding on. Shepherds guide sheep, protect them against predators, lead them to good pastures. And we've been studying through the New Testament letter of 1 Timothy, a letter written to a young church leader named Timothy by the Apostle Paul in the first century. Timothy is at a church in the city of Ephesus, and there has been unrest as a result of false teaching. And so over the past couple weeks, we've seen Paul give specific instructions regarding how the local church is to be ordered. Last week, we saw his directions about the roles of men and women. This week, we see that the God-ordained structure for the church is directed by godly leadership. So in the passage Peter has just read for us, Paul gives credentials for elders, for shepherds of Christ's flock. So with our time together this morning, let's see two things. First, who elders are. And second, what elders do. So first, who elders are. And before I dig in, I wonder if there are some of you who are tempted to check out this morning. Because you just know you're not going to be an elder. You either don't have any desire to be or you're not qualified to be according to these specifications. And so while you understand that church leadership is important and all, you're not a church leader, so this isn't for you. Well, at the outset, I'd just like to remind you that in Scripture, we understand the ultimate authority for the local church, this local church, for this church's life and doctrine and leadership and discipline rests not in its elders primarily, but in you, in its members. 
We are a church led by elders and governed by the congregation. And so you, as a member of this church, are responsible for the right ordering of this church according to this passage. For the right ordering of this church's leadership according to this passage. You set in place the elders of this congregation. This has everything to do with you. Even more, basically, nearly all of these qualifications are shown in other scriptures to be things all Christians must strive after. And so as we think about this text, listen. Listen so you can help this church obey Christ, and listen so you can grow with respect to this holiness and these attributes. Okay, so in these brief seven verses, we see who elders are. We don't necessarily see their tasks we see their qualifications. So if you've applied for a job, you'll know there are qualifications that are expected. A bachelor's degree, five years of experience in the field, proficiency with Microsoft Excel, right? And once you clear those qualifications, then you might find out what the tasks and responsibilities would be. And while those responsibilities might be implicit in this list, what Paul is focusing on primarily is the character of the elder, his qualifications for the task. Paul uses, doesn't use the term elder here. He uses the word overseer, which in Greek is episkopos. In other passages in Acts and Titus, we see that title used interchangeably with the word elder, which is presbyteros. We also see a, a connection with the word pastor. And so it seems clear from the New Testament as a whole that all of these different words, bishop, elder, overseer, pastor, shepherd, point to describe the same office. So Brad and Joe, who just led our prayer, and I are the pastor-elder overseers of Loudoun Valley Baptist Church. It's not that I'm the pastor and they're just the elders. No, we're all pastors. We're all elders, no matter who gets paid by the church or not. So here we see the qualifications for this office. And the first qualification might surprise there in verse 1. Paul says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. An elder must be someone who wants to be an elder. Yet, unlike the false teachers that are prevalent in Ephesus at this time, the true elder's motivation to be an elder will not be for money or power or status, but a holy ambition for the glory of God. This desire to be a leader in the church will not just be any old desire. It's going to be a desire that's then qualified by verses 2 through 7. A desire that's holy and godly. So what do verses 2 through 7 say about this aspiration to this office? There in verse 2, we see the elder must be above reproach. That doesn't mean perfection. But it does mean a reputation that is clean. A man whose life matches his doctrine, whose walk matches his talk. Again, this is a descriptor of all Christians who are growing in Christ's likeness. But can you see how it's extra important for the leader of a church to possess this trait? An elder will be tasked with directing the congregation into godliness, so he must not be regarded 
as unholy. Paul goes on. He says the elder must be the husband of one wife. There have been different understandings of that phrase. Some think it merely condemns having more than one wife, polygamy, which I'm sure it does. But others rightly see a broader meaning, a meaning that emphasizes an elder's commitment and faithfulness to the spouse he does have. And just to be clear, this doesn't prohibit single men from holding the office of elder. Otherwise, Paul himself would be disqualified from these very instructions he's giving. Jesus would be too. Instead, we should understand that if an elder is married, and typically an elder will be married, they must be careful to uphold that marriage covenant with grace and love and faithfulness and steadfastness. There in verse 2, then these next three qualifications can be lumped together. Paul says the elder must be sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. To be sober-minded is to be, as one author puts it, clear-headed. And that leads right into self-control, right? An elder must be clear-headed, disciplined, self-controlled, diligent. Self-control is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit that causes every Christian to become more like Christ. But the elder must lead out in this fruit of the Spirit, exercising self-control, especially in his tongue and his actions and his stewardship. And then thirdly, being respectable there simply shows the outward manifestation of those two inner qualities. John Stott puts these three, sober-mindedness, self-control, self-control, and respectability under the umbrella of self-mastery. The elder is not to be controlled by his lusts, but to submit himself to the control of the love of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, again, the elder must be hospitable. Hospitality was a very important part of the Ephesian culture at this time. There weren't as many hotels a lot depended on people finding hospitality within other folks' homes and in hosts themselves opening up their homes. Even today, we understand that hospitality is a gospel implication in our lives. That's why the women will be gathering in a few weeks, as we said before, to consider the book by Rosaria Butterfield. The, the gospel comes with a house key. I encourage you to pick that up and think more deeply about that. And so Paul is saying an elder must lead out again in that discipline that every Christian will nurture, this discipline of hospitality, showing his home to not merely be a refuge for himself, but a shelter he opens and shares so that weary souls find refreshment in Jesus. There at the end of verse 2, we come to the qualification that is most unique for the elder. The qualification not all Christians will have, and that is the ability to teach. So if you glance over the rest of 1 Timothy and into 2 Timothy and Titus, these pastoral epistles this afternoon, you'll see this theme repeated ad nauseum. Teach, teach, teach. Oh, Timothy, don't forget to teach. Timothy, Titus, hold fast to write teaching. This especially must be a marker for the elder of Christ's church. There in verse 3, we continue on and we see 
a list of qualifications that are shifting away from kind of positive qualifications, you should be this, to negative qualifications. You shouldn't be this. So the elder must not be a drunkard. Goes right along with the idea of self-control, right? Particularly in regards to alcoholic consumption, an elder doesn't need to abstain, but must be cautious. This will be part of his witness. Paul says the elder must also not be violent, but gentle and not quarrelsome, two, two more that go hand in hand. It seems fair to assume that the influence of false teachers at Ephesus had brought quarrels. But true teachers of the true gospel will be ones not bringing quarrels, but peace. Not violence, but sh- gentleness. Shepherds, patiently, graciously guide sheep. They don't harangue or manipulate them. They don't domineer over them, as we read earlier in First Peter. Paul then wraps up verse 3 by saying the elder must not be a lover of money, and this will come up repeatedly for the rest of our study in this letter, because the false teachers were money-hungry. They worshipped wealth and station. Christ's elders must not be so. Verse 4, Paul kind of breaks up this bullet list he's been rattling off, and he, he spends a little bit more time on the next few characteristics of the elder. He starts off by saying he must manage his own household well. It's interesting to note what Paul is doing here. He's drawing an argument from the elder's personal stewardship of his home and his family and his work to his corporate stewardship of God's family. And Paul shows that one of the litmus tests, one of the ways to discern this stewardship is by the elder's care for his children, gently leading them into obedience. See, all these qualities Paul has been preaching must be true of the elder first in his home and then in the church. The the home will be the proving ground for then greater arenas of service and leadership. So Paul asks rhetorically in verse 5, if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And the answer is obviously he won't be able to do that. So the elder must be careful to watch his heart. We see this elsewhere. Paul in Acts chapter 20 urges elders to pay careful attention to themselves and to all the flock. Again, we see the theme in 1 Timothy that we started off our study in a couple weeks ago, that gospel doctrine, gospel faith, sound belief will always play itself out in the Christian life in the way that we live. Gospel doctrine will lead to gospel living, and elders must lead out in that. Elders are to be models, examples of how gospel belief transforms us into gospel people. Verses 6 and 7, Paul gives two more qualifications. First, the elder must be mature in his faith. He says he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. It seems there's different interpretations of this, but the one that makes most sense to me from the text is it seems like Paul is talking about how Satan 
originally was puffed up with pride and underwent God's condemnation. May elders of Christ's church then not fall into the same condemnation as that. The, the premier example of pride going before a fall. May Christ's elders instead be humble, not rejoicing in fame or position or notoriety, but feeling the great weight of caring for the church of Christ. Elders are to be full of Christ, not themselves. And then finally, Paul says the elder must be well thought of by outsiders. He's not only concerned with the elder's reputation inside the church, but outside it as well. He doesn't want the public teacher of the gospel to be brought into disgrace, disgrace that will then have collateral damage, disgrace that will then color the reputation of his local church in the eyes of the watching world, and then color the world's idea of who Christ is. Churches are outposts of missionaries representing who Jesus is and what it looks like to follow him, and elders lead out in that. So can you imagine the disgrace and the damage that comes from an elder being in disgrace in front of the world? Satan loves when a church's shepherds are shown up to be wolves, scoundrels. He loves when an elder's life lies about the gospel. So these are the qualifications for the leaders of the church. These are qualifications for you to study and think about, especially when you think about men who should lead this local church. Become acquainted with them. Pray through them. This is what elders are. But what do elders do? If this is what they are, what do they do? And for this, we're not necessarily taking this directly from this text, but from 1 Peter, which Aaron read for us earlier, from Acts chapter 20 and elsewhere, from Titus chapter 1. And so with that knowledge from what Scripture gives us, let me just give you three main descriptions, job descriptions of the elder this morning. I'm sure there's other things that could be added, but for our purposes this morning, let's just consider three things. Elders teach, elders equip, and elders shepherd. Elders teach, elders equip, and elders shepherd. This is how elders will lead. So first, elders teach. This is clear. We've already mentioned it. Paul says that the elder must be able to teach. And yet we must notice that teaching must not only be the positive proclamation of sound doctrine, but the proper defense against false doctrine. We see this clearly in Paul's words to Titus. He says this about an elder in Titus chapter 1. The elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be, may be able, one, to give instruction in sound doctrine, and two, also be able to rebuke those who contradict it. Church family, the most fundamental job an elder has is to proclaim to you, to share with you, to lead you into right understanding of God's word. And this is a frighteningly sobering task. Because elders are weak and sinful. 
and yet charged by the Holy Spirit and called by the grace of God to interpret and feed the flock of Christ by rightly dividing the word of God. Serious stuff. No wonder James says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And so church, pray for your elders. We aren't better Christians. We don't have a more direct line to heaven than you do. We are church members alongside of you who have been called by God and by you to lead servant-heartedly, to give ourselves to the study of God's word in order to proclaim it to you. So pray for us. Elders especially, I think, rightly would assume that they will have a target on their backs. If Satan can take down the leadership, he can take down the church. So pray for us. Take seriously the study of God's word. Pray that the Holy Spirit would give your elders insight as they proclaim it. Ask us your questions from God's word. Read the sermon text the week beforehand and come ready to listen. May we be a church that holds the teaching of God's word high as our standard for life and practice. And yet, by God's grace, in the midst of the gravity of that task, there is great comfort for the elder. Because no elder has inherent authority to teach and lead in himself. Every elder's authority comes from the head of the body, the head of the church, Christ himself. The authority of the elder's teaching comes not from his, his education or his intellect or his skill, but from the revealed word of God. And that's important personally. Because I'm younger than most of you. Many of you are further along. I can't begin to understand everything you've dealt with and all the life experiences you've had. But like Timothy, who is also a young man, I rejoice that I don't need to have that. Because I'm not going to tell you my wisdom. I'm going to communicate to you by God's grace, his wisdom. I'm not going to tell you what I think. You don't want to hear that. I'm going to tell you what God says. That's the job of an elder. His teaching rests not in himself, but in the chief shepherd. And so an elder must be able to teach. It doesn't necessarily mean being able to do this, stand up and present something from a pulpit. An elder might be one who just faithfully leads in protecting true doctrine training up the church in right theology, faithful interpretation of God's word. So pray, pray that that would be the case here. Elders teach. Elders also equip. Second point. We see this second point of the second point, just in case you're taking notes. We see this in Ephesians chapter 4 especially. So there Paul is writing again to Ephesus. And he says, and Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to what? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Here's how Jonathan Lehman puts it. 
He says an elder's work is training work. It depends upon the elder modeling and repeating in both his word and deed. So speaking figuratively, the elder demonstrates how to use the hammer and saw and then places those tools into the hands of the members. The elder plays the piano scale or swings the golf club and then asks the member to repeat what he has done. See, elders don't do the bulk of ministry. We don't. Pastors aren't the primary folks to build up the church. The church does that. You do that. Jesus has given you, members of Loudoun Valley Baptist Church, that responsibility. Every single Christian is supposed to be in a local church and tasked to build up that local family of believers into holiness and purity. And by God's grace, he has given elders to facilitate that process, to train, not to merely do things for the church, but help the church do the work of the church. Elders are supposed to be examples, models for life in godliness and holiness, repentance and faith. So do you seek to be equipped by your elders? Whether it's with a struggle with a sin or a desire to obey in a more obedient way, something like evangelism or care for your spouse? Do you seek the counsel of those Christ has set up as your trainers? Of course, elders are imperfect. We are sinners. But Jesus has given his church elders under shepherds to train up and then send out Christians who will tell and live out the truth about Jesus. Church, think carefully about who you elect to be your elders. Pray, as Joe prayed earlier, that more men would be raised up here at Loudoun Valley. Pray for this because this is one way, this might be one of the primary ways I would suggest that we will be able to make Jesus non-ignorable in Purcellville and Loudoun County and beyond. Because fruitfulness in the church will come in part by faithful shepherds faithfully equipping faithful church members. That's how it works. All right, so elders teach, elders equip. Finally, elders shepherd. That's a theme we've been hitting on all service long, right? Aaron read for us earlier from 1 Peter 5. I exhort the elders among you, says Peter, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. As one author puts it, elders smell like sheep. They mourn with the sheep. They comfort the sheep. They care for the sheep. They weep for straying sheep. They pray and pray and pray earnestly for struggling sheep. They encourage weak sheep. They love biting sheep. Elders smell like sheep. And ultimately, elders will give an account for those sheep. 
As the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 13, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Dear church, are you willing to be shepherded? Are you teachable? Are you moldable? Are you vulnerable? Not only to the elders of this church, but ultimately to the chief shepherd himself. Any authority that Joe and Brad and I have is only because of the authority that Jesus invests in the elders of his church. Jesus calls pastor elders to care for and bind up the broken and weak, to rebuke the sinful and stubborn, to help the church persevere until he returns. He calls them to lay down their lives for the sake of his bride, the church. And isn't that what he has done? In John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I was struck by the words of that veteran farmer I quoted at the beginning from the article in the Telegraph when he said, believe me, you will be left standing cold and lonely on a mountain. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? When you and I were straying from the good shepherd, he gave his own life for the sheep. When our sin deserved the judgment of God, he sent his son to bear the marks of judgment for those who deserved it. So that if anyone would repent and believe, they would be saved and welcomed into the shepherd's embrace. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. If you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus, Jesus, this good shepherd, invites you into his fold. Not on the basis of your merit or your behavior or your resume, but on the basis of his own blood shed for you. To turn to him and no longer bear condemnation for going astray. Turn to him today. And church, trust this shepherd. Trust the order that this chief shepherd has established in his church. Seek to follow his under-shepherds, the elders he's called to lead his church, as you have covenanted to do in our membership covenant. Build up the body of Christ. And together, let's look forward to the day when, as we sung before in that hymn that I miss singing with you all, we hadn't sung it for so long, when the shepherd king will come back and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He'll bring all suffering to an end, and you will no longer need under-shepherds, for you will have the shepherd himself, this one who will come, utterly vanquish sin, death, hell, and Satan forever, and bring us home to himself. Won't that be glorious? In the meantime, let's persevere together as elders, as a congregation, unified 
until our, our Savior returns. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice in your good design for your church. We pray for our elders currently, for protection and wisdom and boldness. Pray for men in our church who ought to be praying about becoming elders but haven't been, that you would call them to that prayer to discern in their own hearts any aspiration. We pray for our entire church family that somehow, by your grace, you would make us a congregation that has ultimate authority in ourselves and yet follows elders as the elders follow you. We pray that in this good order you have orchestrated in your church, you would do the job of making your name unignorable, big, proclaimed through our church, even today. In Jesus' name. Amen.